0: it up. It's not working. One second. There we go. You guys, we're going to finish Second Kings next week. <laughs> we are now at the very end. So, oh, let me grab my Bible real quick. 20... 20- Chapter 25 is the last chapter. Oops. And what we're going to look at is called it's the Babylonian invasion, which happened one second here. I have to adjust all this. Okay, there we go. Which happens in 586 BC. The reason why this is so important It's amazing to me where the Bible emphasizes things and goes over the top to emphasize certain things. And what the Bible emphasizes and what the church emphasizes, sometimes there's no correlation whatsoever. You would be shocked in terms of what the Bible does. It's like when you go to watch a movie And there are previews, right? Now, there might be a two-hour movie a year from now, but that two-and-a-half-minute preview is to give you a certain amount of information to get you to get ready for it, right? Again and again and again, the prophets, Isaiah does this, Jeremiah does this, Joel does this, Daniel does this, John in Revelation does this. What they do is they refer to the Babylonian invasion of Judah and all of these details as a preview of the end of the age, of the final world empire and the final events of the end of the age. So if you don't get the preview, you're not going to have an accurate view of, the mo- of what's coming, the movie, right? And it's really so often like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel talk about the Babylonian invasion in in 10 verses and then immediately makes a shift. And now they're talking about the end of the age. Why the jump? Because one sets the stage for the other. And so that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. So at the very beginning of 1 Kings, way way back months and months ago, Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem, and he dedicates the temple with a prayer. And in that prayer, he prophesies. And he says, if God's people keep disobeying, that God will cause them to be conquered by their enemies, and God will cause them to be exiled out of their land. 1 Kings 8, 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off and near. Exile. After Solomon does the prayer of dedication, God appears to Solomon again. And God says, hey, Solomon... You're right, if my people keep disobeying me, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to cause my people to be removed from the land, and I'm going to cause my temple, my house, to be destroyed. And that's in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6-9. through 9. But if, this is the Lord speaking, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it... You're thinking, wow, God, if you're going to give a prophecy at a dedication of a temple, you know what I mean? (laughs) So anyways, everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to his his house? The nations will have a better understanding of what God is doing than Israel has. Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. God is faithful. Everybody say "God God is faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises, whether those are promises to bless or promises to judge. If you, An example of this, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, listen to what Paul says. If we deny him, who's we? Paul, you're talking about the church. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying God is faithful to keep his word, even if that is a word of judgment. So what is Paul saying? Absolutely, God will deny us if we deny him and reject the faith. Now, the word faithless doesn't mean I'm struggling with doubt. The word faithless means I have rejected belief in Jesus altogether. Does that make sense? So if we are faithless, he remains faithful, remain faithful to do what? Deny us. That's what the verse means. Now we don't really understand, these verses don't make a lot of sense to us. Because we are not being persecuted for our faith. Why do so many Christians, it would be easy not to be martyred? What do you you have to do? Deny Jesus. Super easy. I can avoid being martyred. I can avoid being imprisoned. I can avoid having my lands taken from me. I just got to deny Jesus. It's in that context that Paul gives us this verse. And what did the early church do? They didn't deny him. They experienced martyrdom on a scale that was unbelievable. So after the temple dedication in 957 BC, Israel and Judah, for the next 370 years, disobey and rebel. That's a long time. How long has America been a country? How long? Yeah, about 250 years. So God gives Israel 370 years to see if they're going to get their act together, and then 586 B.C. comes. Every Christian in the world needs to know the date 586 B.C., God uses the Babylonian invasion in that year. He causes his people to be fully exiled. He causes his temple to be fully destroyed. And in that event, what does God do? He fulfills his word. And what happens to all the nations when the exile takes place? God shows that he exists. God shows that he is sovereign. God shows that he is just. And God shows that he is faithful, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. See, here's what what it is. When God sovereignly arranges something, what is his ultimate goal? When God moves in the nations and fulfills prophecy, what is his goal? His goal is to reveal himself. So Ezekiel is one of the exiles, and Ezekiel, in over 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to do this, and when I do it, you will know that I am God. He says, Ezekiel prophesies to Egypt, when, when I do this, I'm going to do it, and when I do it, you will know that I am God. I mean, over 70 times. The, the primary goal is the knowledge of God. Here's one example, Ezekiel 17, 20 to 21. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. He's talking about Judah. Judah. And you, here it is, and you shall know that I am the Lord I have spoken. So what happens in 2 Kings 24 and 25, we get details. How do the Babylonians invade? How is Judah exiled? And how is the temple destroyed? But not just how it happened. Everybody say why. Why it happened. And so what you have in the final two chapters is you've got the last three kings, then you've got this one governor, and you have four waves of Babylonian invasion. Four waves. And with each invasion, you've got more exile, and you have more destruction. The first king in the first wave, his name is Jehoiakim. Second Kings, chapter 23, verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah. Remember, they're always giving all these details because the author is saying these are real people in real history. Fake people don't have moms, Right? And lineages. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. That's what we call a vassal. And he turned, then, after three years, he turned and rebelled against him. Egypt won a battle against Babylon, and Jehoiakim's like, wow. Wow. I'm going to join Egypt, and maybe we can take on Babylon. Didn't go well. Verse 2, 2 Kings 24, verse 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans and Babylonians is almost the same. And bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites. You might think, well, those are all the ancient enemies of Israel. And sent them against Judah to destroy it. Who sent them? The Lord. the Lord. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant the prophets, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. We talked about the shedding of innocent blood a while ago, remember? Remember? For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. So in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. This is in 605 BC. Now what they do at that time is he finds the leaders and the nobles, the aristocrats, and he exiles them to Babylon. Guess who was included in that exile? Daniel. Remember Daniel and his friends? And he didn't destroy the temple, but he's like, "Ah, there's some good treasures in there. So he grabs some of those treasures and takes them. This is described in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Jehoiakim becomes a vassal, like a servant king of Nebuchadnezzar for three years, and then he rebels. But that, listen to me carefully, that rebellion was not just against Babylon. Listen, that rebellion was against God. There's a prophet, Jeremiah. There's another prophet named Uriah. And they kept prophesying, God is going to send the king of Babylon to invade Judah. And Jehoiakim opposed Jeremiah and Uriah every step of the way. So, what did Jehoiakim do? He kills Uriah the prophet. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 20 to 23. And then he bans Jeremiah from publicly preaching in the temple area. He bans him from that. And then when Jeremiah is like, Well, you're not going to let me preach publicly, I'm just going to write it on a scroll and let somebody read the scroll publicly. So Jehoiakim says, what? So he grabs the scroll, cuts it up into pieces, and then lights the pieces on fire. Jeremiah chapter 36. He's opposing God. The Babylonians directed these raiders to attack them. But in 2 Kings, it says it was God that sent the raiders. 2 Kings 24, 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. Right? Listen to me. God doesn't cause people to be evil. People don't need help being evil. They choose to be evil of their own free will. Right? God, al- does he allow people to be evil? Yes. The only way to stop that is to remove free will. You remove free will, you have robots. You have robots, you don't have intimacy. Right? God allows people to be evil And he doesn't violate their free will. But it doesn't mean he's not sovereign. So what God can do is take their evil actions and use them for his good purposes. Nothing gets wasted. Evil people were not just used in the Old Testament. How did God use evil people in the crucifixion of Jesus? What did the crucifixion accomplish? Salvation for everyone. It happened because God used the actions of evil people. Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed, but by what means? By the hands of what? Lawless men. In God's end time purposes, as we head towards the return of Jesus, evil people and their actions are going to play a critical part. And the return of Jesus is going to be the redemption and lead to redemption and restoration of everything. Not just the salvation of people, but of everything. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 to 12 the coming of the what the lawless one that's an evil person right is by the activity of satan with all power and false signs and wonders i you know when people say you know maybe that i remember hearing people you know that democratic president might be the antichrist or that leader in the Middle East might be the Antichrist. Or that might be the great evil world ruler. I haven't seen anybody doing signs and wonders. At all. We're not even close. Okay? By false signs and wonders and will all, and with all wicked deception. So is the deception wicked? Yes! For those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. God's using a wicked deception? So that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, that's of your own free will, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You just got to think about that for a little bit, right? That was the first wave. Now we get to the second wave and the next king. And his name is Jehoiakim, not Jehoiakim. And this is 2 Kings 24, verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. So the last king reigned 11 years. This guy for how long? Three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, about 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained. Babylon. The Babylonian strategy was the people that are keeping the country running, remove them. The country itself will implode. And then take them to Babylon, the guy, you know what I mean, and and use them to help build the empire. None remained except the poorest people of the land, and he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jehoiakim reigns for three months. In 597 B.C., the Babylonians, another wave of exile, except the poorest of the land. The remaining temple treasures are taken. The furniture is taken. But at this point, Jerusalem is not yet destroyed, and the temple is not yet destroyed. Now, guess who is part of the second deportation? Ezekiel. So another wave gets exiled, and there's a prophet with them. The first one, who is with the first one? Daniel. Now, the second one, Ezekiel. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Now, this event is described in a tablet archaeologists discovered. The tablet is called the Jerusalem Chronicle. It was part of a larger group of tablets called the Babylonian Chronicles. And these tablets cover 11 years of history of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II from 605 to 594 BC, it describes the military campaigns against Assyria, Egypt, and Judah. The Jerusalem Chronicle says, this is outside of Scripture, that in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar II attacks Jerusalem, captures Jehoiakim, and appoints Zedekiah as king. This is literally a quote from the tablet. The king of Babylonia called out his army and marched to Hattu. He set his camp against the city of Judah, which is Jerusalem. And on the second of Adar, which is a date, he took the city and captured the king, who's Jehoiakim. He appointed a king of his choosing, Zedekiah, there took heavy tribute and returned to Babylon. That tablet right now is in the British Museum. And that's what it says. That's what it is. That's what it looks like. So now we get to the third wave. The third wave. And another, the final king, his name is Zedekiah. 2 Kings 24, verse 17. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah which means it's the name for righteousness or justice Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Hamutal the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done for because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. In the ninth year of his reign in the ten month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And a breach was made in the city and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden and the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were around the city and they went in the direction of Areba. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradon, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord Notice how it keeps calling it the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. Do you understand that what they're saying? And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. And the fire pans also and the bowls and what was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one seen in the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the vessels was beyond weight, and the height of one of the pillars was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze, the height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. So that with the final three kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, three times it says they did what? Evil Evil in whose sight? The The sight of the Lord. Not according to the MSNBC commentators, but according to God. So many prophecies are being fulfilled. Clearly, divine judgment is being poured out. Yet, those kings kept doing what? Evil. Against who? God. Even though the evil was the reason for their own defeat. Why did they keep doing that? One of the great themes of the Bible is absolute hardness of the human heart. One of the themes of the Bible is the absolute desire, people's deep desire for evil. And you know what the Bible says as the end of the age draws near? The hardness of the human heart will be at a level that's never been before. Jesus says, prophesying about the end times, Matthew 24, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus said in John 3, people are doing wickedly. And then he says, why in John chapter 3? Because they loved darkness. More than light. Right? There are, in the book of Revelation, one of the the great underlying themes is the hardness of the hearts of the nations and of humanity. And the more God reveals himself, the more they hate him. You might say, well, Sam, that's not the revival passages I'm told about. Well, let's think about it. Did God become a man and walk on this earth? Yes or no? Was there a greater revelation of God? He becomes a man and walks on this earth, right? What did they do to him? They crucified him. Almost everybody rejected him. There was an upper room with a few people left. Revelation 9, 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, these are miraculous signs and wonders from God, and they actually know it's from God, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So under Zedekiah, he's a puppet king that Nebuchadnezzar installs in 586 BC, the final destruction of Jerusalem, the final destruction of the temple. It takes place. And then it does something, which you're like, it's kind of weird that it's doing that. It starts listing the temple items with detail that are dismantled. And here's the crazy part. In 2 Kings 25, verse 13 to 17, that listing of the temple items and furniture, it parallels, it parallels 1 Kings chapter 7, when in detail it talks about Solomon and fashioning, creating the temple items. At the beginning of the book, it mirrors, the two passages mirror each other. What is that highlighting? Everything God initiated in Jerusalem is now being reversed. Reversed. You know what the book of Revelation is? It's the reversal of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's the decreation of the nation's earth and cosmos. The mirroring of the two passages highlight everything God initiated is being reversed. Israel, because of her sin, is going as backwards as backwards can be. One of the reasons that Zedekiah and Judah rebelled against Babylon, they did not believe that the Babylonians would prevail. Why? Everybody say false prophets. It was because of the false prophets in the land. They kept saying God is not going to allow his temple to be destroyed. They said, man, do you remember when Assyria attacked and Assyria surrounded Jerusalem? Assyria got wiped out by an angel because God would not let his city and his temple be destroyed. The temple is the place of his presence. God's not going to let it wiped out by a bunch of evil Babylonians. The false prophets taught this every Sunday from their pulpit. That thought would not fit their theology. Again and again, Jeremiah said, those guys are false. They are misrepresenting God. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. Quote, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Can you hear some sarcasm? In Jeremiah's voice? Jeremiah 14, 13. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Now we get to the last wave. This is the final wave. This is the fourth wave. This is it. The kings are gone now. Now we've got a governor left. His name's Gedaliah. Verse 21, 2 Kings chapter 25. We'll finish with this. So Judah was taken into exile out of the land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor. So now it's no longer a country, it's a district of Babylon. Now there's no more kings. A governor is installed. Gedaliah the son of Ahikah. I already read that. Verse 23. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah a governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Saraiah, the son of the Netta Wow, I can't even pronounce that. The Netophathite and Jaazaniah the son of the Maakathite. Wow, it's like speaking in tongues. <laughs> and Gedaliah swore to them and their men saying, "Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials or the Babylonian officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you." He is preaching Jeremiah's sermon but in the seventh month Ishmael the son of Nethaniah the son of Elishama of the royal family came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans so these guys killed Jews and Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah now they're going to be afraid right then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces, you need to notice this, arose and went where? Egypt. Where? Egypt. They go to Egypt. For they were afraid of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So Judah becomes an official district of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar appoints Gedaliah as governor over the district. And Jeremiah is encouraging the Jews, prophesying to the Jews. Don't resist the Babylonians. Accept their rule, and wherever you get exiled, you're now a missionary. Pray for the city that you are sent to. Be a witness, be a blessing to Babylon wherever you are sent. You know, God had been trying to get Israel to be a witness to the nations for a long time. They don't go on their own. So finally God says, well, I I need a witness in the nations. Let me cause it to happen. A similar thing happens to the church in the book of Acts, by the way. They will not cross the borders out of Israel. So a severe persecution hits, and it says in the book of Acts, then they spoke the word of God everywhere they went to everyone they went to. Hello? Everybody say hello. hello. <laughs> Jeremiah 29:7. but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I appreciate that people are leaving California. I also appreciate, let's pray for California and seek the welfare of this state as the church of God in Orange County in California, right? Gedalia likely followed Jeremiah's direction. Gedaliah's own father, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, was a strong supporter of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah 26, 24. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that's Gedaliah's dad, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. But this prominent Jewish family assassinates Gedaliah assassinates a bunch of Jews and Babylonians that were with him, that would be seen as a revolt against Babylon. So what happens to the rest of the Jews? Where do they flee to? Egypt. The fourth and final exile was a self-exile. A self-deportation back to Egypt. At this point... It's an absolute, utter rejection of God's covenant. An utter rejection of God. Because all throughout the book of 1 and 2 Kings, every time God wants to remind Israel about how good he is, about his mercy and redemption, it is the exodus from Egypt that is always brought up. I mean, it is everywhere in the book of 1 and 2 Kings to remind Israel. Two examples. First Kings chapter 8 verse 16. Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. Here's another example. 2 Kings 17:7. 7, Elijah is praying. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. So centuries later, Israel, at the final, her rebellion final leads to this. She completely returns back to Egypt, the land of her own slavery. Because of their sin and unrepentance, a full reversal takes place. A full rejection of everything that God is and everything that God has done. What does God do also? Did you know that God takes his prophets with his words? Every time there's an exiled group, God says, I'm going to send a prophet with them. Every time. Remember we talked about first wave Daniel, then Ezekiel, second wave. Remember that? In the very last group to Egypt, guess who goes with them? They take Jeremiah. In their flight to Egypt. Now, Jeremiah told them by the word of the Lord don't go to Egypt, remain in Babylon. Jeremiah 43, verses 5 to 7. You see, God, even while He's judging them, He is not abandoning them. Do you understand that? He's not abandoning them. We'll finish with this verse. Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 5 to 7. But Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven. The men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person who Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shepham. Also, Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, but the voice of the Lord never left them. You see that? So that's, next week we're going to finish with the final few verses of 2 Kings. But when we look at the exile, what we're going to find is going to teach us about the ways of God. Right? It's going to teach us what will God do? What will it take to turn the hardest of hearts? God will shift nations to get his point across. God will use really horrible empires to make himself known hello amen just close our eyes for a moment Just for a moment, let's just wait on God. You know, during worship, I had a thought. And I, and I really believe it is from the Lord. And I think it's what God wants us to do to finish out just our morning gathering. And as a church, and I'm not talking about a long time, we're gonna do this quickly, is I really feel like as a church, um, we're gonna we're gonna come before the Lord and we're gonna ask God to visit Israel and the Jews, and we're gonna ask God to visit the Palestinians and the Muslims, Jerusalem, Judea, and Gaza. And so here's what I want us to finish with, and it's just a corporate statement before God. I want one of you to come up, and you're going to lead us in a prayer for the Jews and for Israel, and then one of you to come up on the microphone and lead us in a prayer for those the, the, the Palestinians, the Muslims, those in Gaza and the West Bank. And we're going to make a church statement before heaven asking God for these two things. And then we're going to finish. But what we're asking God to do is right now, the, the, the world sees wars, but what is God sovereignly doing to lead people to repentance right now? You understand what I'm saying? Who is God using? What is God arranging right now? The reason I wanted to wait on God is just see if the Lord, if there's somebody like, you're like, I have to be the one to pray for Israel and for the Jews. Who is that? Okay, come on up. So I'm going to give you this microphone, and then who-
1: Father, you chose the Israelites, a small and insignificant people, and you printed your heart upon them. You infused your blood into their nation, Father. You poured your own blood on the soil of Israel. Lord God, we cry out now on their behalf, oh, beloved Father. Open the eyes of your cherished ones. Open their eyes, Father. Lord, turn their hearts. Lord, let them in this time of need cry out to Jehovah, their almighty God. Let them cry out to Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies. Lord, call to their mind the times that you stepped into their story and saved them from their enemies. Call back to their minds, Father, the times when you released your holy armies on their behalf and they warred on their behalf and slaughtered their enemies before them. Father, we ask, turn their hearts to you. Turn their hearts. Let them cry out before you, Father, for the God of their ancestors, for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let them cry to you, beloved Father. Let them cry. Let them cry and discover again the God who placed his name upon them, the God who gave them the land that they dwell in. Let them call again, Father, and let them discover you. Let them discover you right by their side. Oh, Holy Father, we lift them to you. We place them before you. We pour our words into those bowls of incense on their behalf, Lord God. Hear us, oh, Father, as we cry to you.
2: Father God, we, we just open our eyes. We open our hearts to you, God, right now. Lord, uh, Lord, I've heard stories of uh, even uh, Muslims in the middle of Iran when a miracle is done where a grandfather is healed. And they, they turn, the whole family turns, but then he, they say at the same breath that we cannot acknowledge this openly or our, our brothers in this country will kill us. So God, we just lift up the Palestinians and we lift up the Muslims. Father God, I've met Muslims. Uh, I've had Muslims say, please pray for my son. Lord, they acknowledge that you are God. And I pray, Lord, that they would know that there is one true God on this planet. You are the one that loves them. You are the one who has your arms open wide to them. Uh, I pray, God, that the, the misinformation that goes out, there's, there's Muslims that are bold and they have a, an attitude of Satan. But I pray, God, that they would turn and they would see you, Lord, that they would know that your heart is for them. Lord, that they would actually read the Bible, even read the Old Testament and see that this is not a God who just does things that are wrong. Lord, even when you spoke to Abraham, you said that you cannot, you cannot have the land yet because they've not done the things that they're going to do yet. But your heart is for them to turn towards you, Lord. So, Lord, we cry out for the Muslims. We cry out for the Palestinians. Lord, that you would give us a heart for these people, that we would extend your love. Every opportunity that we have in the market, uh, walking in a park, anytime, Lord, when we come near them, that we would lift them up and we would pray for them, but we would also help. We would bless them. And I pray that they would know that this is not just a, a facade but this is Jesus working in us. This is the God of the universe. and We praise you, Lord. We praise you for your love for these people. And you've made it clear that your desire at the end time is that all man will know that you are God yes. and that we would live forever with you. And, Lord, your purpose is for all mankind to know you, yes. all people, all tongues, Thank you, Lord, for the Palestinians. Thank you for the Muslims. Change our hearts today. If our hearts are hard against them, I pray, God, change our hearts that we would see them through your eyes, O oh God. Thank you, Lord, for them. And thank you for your heart for us. We turn to you now, Lord, and we trust you. We say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord, we just finished this morning, God. We speak over the city of Jerusalem.
0: We pray for its peace, not a political peace, but peace through Jesus. And to Jew and Muslim, you would come in dreams. You would come in visions. You would show miracles. We ask for a spiritual awakening, revival, and repentance in the city of Jerusalem, in Israel, in Gaza, in the West Bank. We call upon you now, Jesus. Let your kingdom come and break in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.